0: Hello, and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to be joined by former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall, and by NPR's media correspondent, David Falkenflick. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by Super Lucky and Magic Spoon. Please check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes, and we thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us. Remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, James, you doing well?
1: Yeah. I got my second jab, so I'm excited about that. got it Monday. And, uh... You know, it, to stand as careful as I can be, the weather down here has really been, been pr- pretty good here the last week or so. So, well, uh,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm about 10 days away, but, but it's a great relief, as it must be for you, um, you know, on this week, we really need a split screen on the Biden administration and Congress and the Trump nightmare, which is not going to fade. Uh, I thought Biden had a good first week, robustly active, most importantly on the COVID relief, inheriting a mess. So things aren't easy. I have much more confidence than I did a few weeks ago. Uh, we have the adults in the room now Tony Fauci, Jeff Zients. Uh But I think that the president is probably a little bit too optimistic. I don't think this is going to disappear by the spring. I hope it does. Or I don't think we're going to be back to normal by the spring. I guess that's what he's saying. My dream of going to Nationals Park in April, I think, is going to be delayed. But we're going to get there. As I say, we have the adults in charge. That makes me feel good. Meanwhile, Senate Republicans still are intimidated by Trump land. Forty-five, including Mitch McConnell, voted that impeachment is really not constitutional if someone's out of office. That flies in the face, James, as you know, of most constitutional experts in logic. If an outgoing president commits an act of treason, which doesn't fall under the criminal code in the final months. That means he can't be impeached? Uh, it just, it, it, it's a cop-out. It's a cowardly cop-out. And now Republicans like Susan Collins and Democrats like Tim Kaine, who I usually agree with and respect a great deal, are floating this idea of censuring him. The purpose of censure is to dishonor and disgrace. Well, You, you think that's going to dishonor or disgrace Trump? How can you go lower than you've gone already? So that's
1: my take on this week. Give me yours. I, I, I like Biden's optimism. I, I, I never, no one ever wins anything unless they think they're going to win it, right? And I, I think he knows his team. Uh, I like a leader that sets up and says, "We're going to get this done by here." And I think it, it I think it puts a marker down. I, I, I was very, I was very impressed by his optimistic timetable. I mean, look, he's not. You know, not like Trump, up like denying the problem. This is, we go. This is a marker. This is what we're going to achieve. This is what we're going to do, and everybody clearly knows uh, what's expected of them. Uh, so I'm. I'll take a little bit of a of a different view. There, I actually very much like the fact that he was willing to put an aspirational number out there and put 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 his name behind. It. Uh, whether they can do it or not, I don't know. I suspect they can't. I, I I just from everything I know about. The people that he has in place, they know what the fuck they're doing. And that makes a difference. Uh, In terms of Trump, anybody, if you have any doubt about anything, go to the site Just Security. There's a 10-minute video. It's the most devastating thing I've ever seen you can imagine, where it connects Trump's words to their words. And it has the entire time, this happened at this time, this happened at that time. I, I am... You know, I, I've been at loss to explain the Republican Party for, for quite a while. I, I'm totally at loss. Of, and they were literally, they were saying, hang Mike Pence. And I, 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 I'm not even going to try to explain these people anymore. I, I, I It's just something that is disintegrated in front of my very eyes. I, I never thought it would. And I I don't know how to come back. And then we so well, uh, you know, it, 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 Rob Portman is quitting, and this, that, and it's it, it just, this is what 35% of the country wants, which is 70% of the Republican Party, and it's just not going to change. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I really don't see it changing. I always thought maybe there's a way you could, and you know, you should be respectful of people and everything, man, if, if this hasn't outraged you to the, to the insta there's nothing I can do for you. I, 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 I'm sorry. It, you're not supposed to say this, but just, you, if you in some way are not outraged by this, you're stupid. Right? You're just stupid. And apparently a lot of people are. Well,
0: I, I agree. I think there was a naive tale in thinking that Mitch McConnell would end up uh, – Doing the right thing here. Mitch McConnell would love to have Trump killed. There's no question of that. But Mitch McConnell always has his finger up. He is politically shrewd, uh, not a great deal of principles. And uh, when he saw the way that wind was blowing in the Republican Party, not the country, uh, he uh, I knew he'd cave. Uh, I never thought they'd get to, you know, whatever it was, 10 or 15 members. Uh, and I hope they stew in it. I don't know. Based on the past, we're never sure of that. Yeah. But uh, I think it's almost impossible to come even close to a conviction. I hope they have a good trial. They make the case. But when 45 Republican senators say, hey, you know, this is unconstitutional what we're doing, it's hard for any of them to turn
1: around and then, and then, and then vote to convicting. I actually thought— So I think the, that's where we are. I thought the Ukraine thing was, was stone-cold guilty. I mean, what was there to even debate? Look, whatever happens—and now they're going to take out Liz Cheney. Well— You know, I really need to know the story of Admiral Yamamoto was the Japanese Admiral, was in the United States, was the most talented one. We had to take him out, right? Well, she's Yamamoto. She is the reason she kicked our ass in 2020 in the House. She's the one that went out and recruited all these people and, and, you know, basically raised the money for them. Not all of them, but most of them, all, all these Republican women coming in and they're going to take her out themselves. I mean, we're going to—they—they're they, going to let you know Nagumo or somebody run their outfit. I mean, this is how stupid they are. I mean, they're really stupid people. That that's well, it is, and that if is you stupid. look
0: on the other side of the Capitol, uh, the Portman retirement—I think Portman put his, um, his, his, his spine, his principles in a blind trust. The last—he's always been a Bush. A moderate, conservative, very smart Republican. He's just made a, you know, I think he's been cowed the last four years, and I think he probably left because he was embarrassed. Uh, there's no sense of self-esteem. But that does open up a seat, and that does make 2022 even more interesting. There are now going to be at least three or four prime candidates for Democrats to win, not only Ohio, which is, you know, it depends on who runs. could be tough, but 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 it's doable, but North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Iowa, Grassley can't run again. He's 87 years old. Uh, and the Democrats may have one or two, like Georgia. I'm uh, not sure what Pat Leahy will do. But, you know, that suddenly who knows what happens in the next 18 months, James. But, you know, there's talk
1: now of maybe a couple more Republican retirees. Look, that it, it, it is assumed. and I, 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 If you say that the that, that in party does traditionally poorly, very poorly, in the first off the election, that, that is true, although it wasn't the case in 2002. It wasn't the first off the election, but it wasn't the case in 1998 either. Uh, it, it certainly was the case in 2006 and 10 and 14. I, I think we live in, in a different world, but the, the, the Senate map and the House recruiting is going to be critical, and I, I just think in terms of the House— that all of their problems with Liz Cheney is, is really going to hurt them because after her, it's more or less a pack of buffoons, and you know it, it, everybody like I, you know everybody looks back nostalgically like they're principal Bush Republicans. I mean, maybe I have a, a a different view from the period 2001 to the start of 2009. You know, Bob Portman was all part of that putting all that anti-gay stuff on the ballot in Ohio, so Bush could carry it. You know, I mean, don't even get me started on the Iraq War, or Hurricane Katrina, or or the the you know leverage that they allowed of the inaction in the financial crisis. I mean, don't let me go on and on. But I'm 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 not that impressed with principled Bush Republicans. Not at all. But, so, you know, when, when well it's, it is. It's important that the Democrats really focus
0: on getting good candidates and they target the right places in the House because they're going to lose a net probably of four or five seats with redistricting. I mean, at least that may right. be minimal. It depends on how badly some state legislatures can right. gerrymander uh, and whether they can win legal tests. But um, they've really got to, I mean, there's no question that this last November was a real disappointment in House elections for Democrats. It was. And uh, they have to start now. And they have to get uh, the right sort of candidates because um, uh, I don't. I think the Republicans. I agree with you. I think they engage in self-destruction. And if they unseat Liz Cheney, it's even 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 worse than supposed. But um, you know, a lot of onus in the Democrats too to respond but wisely. They got
1: they need to respond wisely, and you know, some you know we got to like get really like we did in two thousand eighteen and really, really, you know, recruit top 10, get other, other Democratic candidates to recruit really good people, bring everybody into the recruitment game. And, and for God's sakes, the, 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 I don't want to listen to these people. Are gonna, the party's doing great. They, they win a seat with a plus 32 Democratic performance, and they think they've done something. You know, when you do something, you win a seat that has a plus three and a four, you know, Cook RPVI. I just don't want to hear from these people. All they do is just, they, they do nothing but run their mouth. They can't win a race at anything other than an overwhelmingly Democratic district. It, they they oh, were a yeah, on this party. Turning back to the Biden uh,
0: first week, uh, James, uh, I, I agree, optimism is always a good thing, and I'm, I'm not belittling Biden any way for that, but I also... I uh, think that we have some tough times ahead. This new virulent strain uh, could make matters worse temporarily. We have, we, you know, I have no doubt of the, that we have the best people uh, involved in it now. But uh, we're going to have a tough couple months. And uh, I don't like that. I wish it weren't the case. Uh, I'm, I'm just going stir crazy in isolation, largely isolation. Uh, but I, I think it's, I hope we can open schools soon, but I don't think we're going to open most schools for a couple months. And uh, I think that uh, it, the good news is that we have, as I said earlier, and I'll say it for the third time, adults are in the room now. That's important.
1: Look, they, they are already working. You know, look, one of the things that people are going to have to live with, and, you know, we're old, so it's not, but your grandchildren, even your children will live with it, it's got to get vaccinated every year. You know, if everybody wore, an N95 mask. of a stick in back, that costs like a dollar. All right, you would end this thing in three weeks. It just ended. I mean, you, if if, oh, I if think you did realistic. certain things, and I'm not, I think we got, I think we got good people. I'll actually, you know, is it going to be like we all be going to baseball games and you know April 1st? I I don't know, but I I bet you we I bet you we'll be doing it May 15th. I bet you they're going to crank these vaccines out. I think that logistically, these people know what they're doing. Uh, you know, you know, and look, it may not work against the South African strain, but, you know, and they'll have to think of something else. But and I, I, everybody that I know and respect, I shouldn't say everybody, most all people I know and respect think that the economy is on stage because of high savings rates and other things. It's, you know, set to roaring comeback. And. Come back. and I think I, I think these these public health guys and logistical guys that are in there I, I think they're going to kick ass. I really do. I, I well, I think them. I, you're right. They they are terrific. They would be immeasurably aided
0: if ten or twelve Republicans would cross over and pass that COVID relief bill quickly, rather than wait and do it in early March with just Democratic votes. It does funnel out a bunch of money really quickly. Yeah. For healthcare workers, for schools, for a bunch of things that would expedite uh, the recovery from this. But I'm got to tell you, I'm not very optimistic we're going to do yeah, it. Yeah,
1: I mean, maybe they can pick one. I just don't, don't care about. I, I don't have any uh, principal Republicans. I, that this, this is no, there's no such thing. I mean, it's really. I mean, it, you know, they're all out or they're getting ready to be be kicked out. I mean, it, 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 this country cannot. In any way, shape, or form, expect anything out of the Republican Party. It just can't. Well, you had five who voted for, you know, basically voted for impeachment day yesterday.
0: Yeah, five. You know, I mean, I mean yeah, well, I, I agree. It was not okay. many, he but, five, I but I think Chris Cheney crazy. was principled. I think Adam Kinziger was principled, and I think, right. you know, I think that Mitt Romney's been
1: principled. Never many. It's a teeny minority, but I don't okay. think it's everybody. Yeah. I, I Again, okay. I just, uh, I I think if anybody is waiting on the country to be saved by the Republican Party, yeah, at 45, didn't, All right? Romney's already been out there. Toomey's not running again. The one that probably had the most courage of a whole lot was Sass. And and how, how did they not know? How did Ben Sass not know that this was going to happen. What has he done that would surprise anybody? That's my question. What was you know, Mitt Romney going there and having dinner with him? And of course, you know, Trump was, was an idiot. I, I do give Romney, you know, he, he's been out there pretty, pretty consistently. He was out there on, on impeachment. So, I, but okay, let's. Mitt Romney's a, a principal, something, whatever, right? I I just don't I, – I, 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 look, I'd love to be wrong. I'd love for, like, you know, 15 Republicans to say we put country, you know, first. But it's <laughs> ain't going to happen. But Eisenhower is not coming back. Just not. It's not going to happen. Done. And, and I keep thinking, well, this is going to really shake them up. Man, I tell you, these, you know, Republicans I knew would be so outraged by this self-dealing in Ukraine – they're going to come out of the woodwork. Oh shit! Nothing. Then well, they'd have to be outraged about an assault on the temple of American democracy. I mean, uh, the, the the most sacred secular building in the entire United States. Nothing. 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 Well, Mitt Romney. Okay, Mitt Romney. You know, let's let's talk about Mitt Romney. Nothing. Yeah,
0: no, I don't. I don't disagree with you. And I guess what what. What depresses me a bit, though, is most of that—not the carnage on January 6th—most of that was not only evident prior to November the 3rd, it's been evident since 2016. You know, who was it? The the great mantra that some of the conservatives had was that the problem with the press is that they take Trump literally and they don't take him seriously. They shouldn't take him literally. Yes, we should. He told us what he was going to do. None of it was a surprise. And I guess what gets me a little bit down, James, is we knew all that, and uh, other than Joe Biden— Democrats didn't do very well last November.
1: Well, you know, we did pretty well in in January. So let's take the continue. All right? We didn't do that well. I'll I'll take those two elections. You're right. But overall, November was pretty disappointing. It was disappointing. We didn't didn't run a 2018 campaign. All right? Pretty evident what happened. And, And everybody got wrapped up in a new shiny thing and forgot fundamental politics. Hopefully... You know, we, whatever it is, have a thin, we, we just can't, we didn't do as well as we wanted to down ballot in, in, in 2020. Okay, that's, let, let's get on and talk about the a shot we could do in in, in, in Iowa. What, what can we do in Ohio? What can we do in Pennsylvania? What can we do in North Carolina? What can we do in Wisconsin? How can we hold these seats? You know, is, is Kelly going to have trouble in Arizona? You know, Nevada was closer than we wanted. Did that In a typical off-year election, could, could Mastos lose a seat? I mean, that's just the way it is. And, you know, Joe Biden has got to, got to set good markers, has got to be optimistic, and we we got we, we to gotta kick ass in 2022. And the Republicans are not going to help us. They're not going to discover their principle. They're not going to come to the conclusion that they're Americans first and Republicans second. It's not going to happen. This is not going to happen. And so we just got to deal with the fucking hand that we got. Keeping your body in shape is important.
0: It's also important to keep your mind sharp, and it's easy when you're leveling up your focus with Word
1: Forest, right, James? It, it is. And every time you have a temptation to think about Trump, just go to Word Forest. And that was good mental exercise. Is that when you are having those kind of bad thoughts, you can you can go there and have it can concentrate your mind in a, in a different way that can only be positive. So I, I, I think it, it it's good for mental exercises, and it can also be very good for mental distraction. So This is a hell of a product.
0: Yeah, particularly in these times. Wordfarts, it's a free word puzzle app by Super Lucky. It's been taking families by storm. It's made for word search addicts. It has over 2,000 levels, but starts easy and gets harder and you get better. So you'll never get bored. Connect letters in any direction and form hidden word matches and find as many words as possible to earn bonus coins to uncover hidden words. I'm hoping we all, my whole family, can get together this summer when this COVID has um, uh, at least gotten back to normal and we can play this game because it's a lot of fun and even has a relaxing nature setting. Are the Carville Madeline's going to be playing this, James?
1: I hope I hope so. I mean, I hope our family uh, made a plan. Is We're going to get together and spend a lot of summer together. And, hey, you know, it's better than Monopoly. That's what we, <laughs> that's what we played when I was a kid. So, <laughs> I mean, it's a... My daughter's very much. My oldest daughter is very much of a, a, a wordsmith as as is her husband. So I, I I know going into it, I'll get the shit kicked out of me, but that's okay. It'll be fun anyway. There's nothing better than to get beat badly by your children. <laughs> and I yeah, we
0: always play bad. the you know men against the women, and so I got to go against my wife. And, and my not wife not a is a
1: very for me. She's a um, very good but, wordsmith editor, so I'll, I'll I'll definitely come out last. Yeah, I know the feeling.
0: Right now Word Forest is offering you 2500 coins and 500 gems when you download and play. So stop mindlessly scrolling social media and keep your mind sharp. Just go to the Apple or Google store and search for Word Forest or look for a link in our show notes. Download Word Forest for free today and get ready to flex your brain muscles. Hey, James, 2021 is not off to a good start for Russian dictator Vladimir Putin. His pal Donald Trump is out of the White House, sulking in Florida. The courageous uh, dissident uh, uh, Navalny, who Putin thugs tried to poison uh, and didn't succeed. He left and then he's returned. Uh, He's really, really courageous. He was arrested right away. Uh, But he's put out videos of Putin's corruption and their mass street demonstrations all over Russia, Some in the bitter cold. Our guest no one better to talk about this than Michael McFaul, an international relations professor at Stanford, who was Obama's ambassador to Russia for more than two years, where, to his great credit, he incurred Putin's wrath. Mr. Ambassador, thank you for joining us. Put yourself in Putin's shoes today. He's very shrewd. We know that if evil, Uh, he wants to. He'll crack down on, on the protest. He probably wants to kill Navalny, but it's hard to do that with all the attention. What's he thinking?
2: Well, that's a good question. Thanks for having me, you guys. Um, uh, you know, he's you know he's been in power for 20 years. I think that's the first thing we need to start with, right? And uh, no matter how popular a leader, you know, I had the pleasure to serve for five years for President Obama. But I'll bet if Obama was in power for 20 years, even people would be getting tired of him, right? So. Uh, Putin faces this problem that there's real malaise in society, the economy's not really growing, um, public opinion shows that, and he has this guy, Navalny, who is exposing the corruption of his system, and as you just said, Al, is an incredibly brave person. I can't believe what he's done after they tried to kill him to go back, and so he faces a dilemma. He, he arrested Navalny because he didn't think he could just let him come back and be free, But if he keeps him in jail, and that's my prediction that he will, he'll make Navalny a martyr and Navalny will eventually become, you know, the Nelson Mandela of the uh, Democratic opposition in Russia. And that's not a good scenario for Putin as well. And to add to that, as you rightly pointed out, uh, he's lost his friend in the White House and he has to deal with a very different president here in the United States.
0: I I want to get to Biden in just a moment, but one more question about Navalny. There have been lots of Russian dissidents in the past, and for all their courage, for all the protests, little has changed. Why is it – why could it be different this time, and why doesn't Putin just expel Navalny again?
2: Well, uh, I don't know the answer to your first question, and I want to uh – make your listeners aware that nobody knows the answer to your first question. Um, you know, I'm a political scientist here at Stanford. Uh, we're really bad at predicting uh, how regimes fall and how democratic movements succeed. Uh, by the way, I worked for five years in the government, and I can say the CIA is not very good at it either. <laughs> so remember that. Uh, we're not good at predicting that. And we don't know if Navalny is the next Mandela or Valenza or Havel or if he's one of the million, not millions, but dozens or hundreds of very brave leaders in autocratic regimes that faded away because they didn't achieve their objectives. Uh, You've probably never heard of Akbar Ganji, for instance, but Ganji was an Iranian dissident uh, in jail for many years, and he was oftentimes referred to as the Mandela of Iran. And but that hasn't worked out. Right. And he now lives in exile. I think he's in Canada. So we don't know how to predict that. Uh, That said, I think there's something different about these demonstrations compared to the last several years in that it it was hastily organized. Uh, People knew that they were going to be arrested. Uh, Some of the places they demonstrated, it was, you know, freezing temperatures, 50 below zero out in Siberia. Uh, And yet you saw tens of thousands of people come out in 120 cities, not just Moscow and St. Petersburg. And remember, at least we know this from those of us who study social movements. I've been writing about it for several decades. Uh, You know, when tens of thousands of people are willing to get arrested for a cause, that means that hundreds of thousands of people have their same preferences but are not willing to get arrested for their cause. So I think this is a, a pretty big inflection point uh, in terms of the future of you know uh, the opposition versus Putin re- regime. Having said all that, that doesn't mean that uh, you know this regime is going to collapse overnight. Uh, Mandela, I keep referring to him, but he was in he was in jail for three decades. Remember, right? So in year fifteen, and sixteen, and seventeen. Nobody knew that eventually the apartheid regime was going to fall and that he would eventually be released and become president of South Africa. I remember those dark years having been involved in that movement, and I just think it's appropriate and uh, uh, important for us all to remember we don't know how these dramas end.
0: What actions should the Biden administration take as far as Putin and Russia are concerned? More sanctions? Uh, I mean, they want to deal with them uh, on the arms treaty, but on the other hand, uh, they should pay a price for their unconscionable uh, hacking uh, of America and what they're doing with the dissidents over there. So what would you like to see Biden do?
2: Well, first, he just talked to Putin yesterday, uh, first time since uh, he's been president. I was at the last meeting, by the way, when Vice President Biden met with Prime Minister Putin. That was back in 2011. Um, And I think in one fantastic readout, uh, whoever wrote it, uh, I think I know who wrote it, but uh, I think that it was brilliant. Uh, Somebody used to write these. And here's why. Because in one readout, you got exactly uh, codified what I think the Biden policy towards Russia is going to be. So number one, engage with the Kremlin when it's in America's national interest. They said that, and they're going to extend the new START treaty. I think that's right. Number two, they're going to push back. They're going to deter and push back on Putin's belligerent ways. And you saw that in the statement. They talked about Ukraine. They talked about Navalny. They talked about Solar Winds, the cyber attack that they did on this. Brilliant. So they're going to contain and engage simultaneously. And then third, uh, President Biden is going to talk about democracy and human rights, uh, and that's why he mentioned very deliberately Navalny in the call. And let me be clear, they mentioned Navalny in the readout. I, I assume he said something in the call. We only know what the White House told us they talked about, but that's, that's the policy. I think that's great. I think that's exactly what's needed. However, the devil is in the implementation. Uh, easy to have ambitions in terms of policy, a lot harder to implement them. And going forward, how you manage those three things simultaneously—that's going to be difficult. And in particular, I think the rubber hits the road when we find out how far the new Biden team is willing to go with respect to sanctioning those individuals that were responsible for trying to kill Navalny. Uh, Navalny did something very clever. He's he's a very smart politician. Right before he got onto the plane. To fly back to Moscow, he had his team list a group of Russian oligarchs, billionaires, uh, who he said, if you really want to punish Putin's regime for their attempt to try to kill me, don't just sanction a bunch of Russian intelligence officers, a bunch of low-level colonels that nobody's ever heard of. You need to sanction these people because these people are the ones that enable the Putin regime, and they're the ones with assets in the West, in the United States. Um, Now, you know, so he put that, you know, he put the challenge before the Biden administration. I don't know what they're going to do, but that will be an indicator as to how far they want to go in in terms of sanctioning not just the kind of usual suspects, but these people that are closer to Putin.
0: Well, I want to turn this over to James, but first I have to—I'm sure Biden will speak directly to him uh, because one of my favorite stories, which Bill Bradley taught, tells, when he went on a on a Moscow trip with Joe Biden, they're sitting across from the top Russian officials who were giving them the usual, and Joe Biden, Senator Joe Biden, then looked at him and said, "As we say in America, don't shit a shitter." So uh, I hope he told
1: Putin that yesterday. I didn't James know that Carter, story. James Carter, go ahead. So, Ambassador, I, I want to go back to these protesters because I watched them and the point you make is they, they weren't just Moscow state students in right. Moscow. They seem to be all over the country. And I don't care if you're Russian 50 degrees below zero is goddamn cold. Right. <laughs> it's just cold. It doesn't matter. But, but is this movement, is it, Cause we look at, uh, are these like a bunch of college kids or elites or are they welders and dental hygienists out there? Or from where you sit and just looking at, it. I keep looking at these pictures and try to bring them up and say, "Hey, what what kind of what is this person trying to tell me?" And how and I know it's hard to be sitting in Palo Alto, you know, and trying to figure out what's happening in Saint Petersburg. But how, how deep do you think this dissension is, just from where you sit?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And um, uh, rather than just giving you my impressions, you know, there are some uh, sociologists in Russia. These are my friends trying to figure out the opposition. And I would say a couple of things that will resonate with you because I watch you on TV every night talking about these things in America. Um, uh, Putin's electoral base is very similar to Trump's electoral base uh, in that uh, the, the, the more rural you are, the less educated you are, um, and the less wealthy you are, the more likely you are to support Putin. And conversely, the more urban you are, the more educated you are, and the more wealthy you are, you're more likely to support Navalny. And then there's a there's a generational thing there too. The younger you are, the more likely you are to support uh, Alexei Navalny. That you know, lots of surveys have been done, and that I, I think that's pretty clear cut. What Navalny's trying to do. Uh, just like any politician, right? He's trying to expand his base. Uh, he wants to reach beyond uh, the, the folks that have been supporting him. And he's doing that by exposing corruption, right? Uh, right before he left to go back to Moscow, uh, his team released um, this incredible video. I, I highly uh, recommend your listeners to go watch it. It's called Putin's Palace. Uh, you can find it on YouTube, uh, 90 plus million people have already watched it, and you can bet that you know the vast majority of them are Russians. By the way, it has English subtitles, so you can uh, everybody can follow along. And what you see there is just this incredible palace that that allegedly Putin built. Uh, you know, it looks like something that the czars would built, and he's trying to say, folks, that's your money. Uh, they're stealing from you, and that's why you need to to be against this regime. And and I I don't want to get ahead of my skis and 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 you know. But the the some of the snap polling that was done of the protesters last weekend, a quarter of the people that showed up that was their first time that they'd ever ever participated in a protest, and that suggests to me that maybe Navalny is succeeding in expanding his base.
1: Well, uh, you know, one of the things is, these things never look like they're going to happen. And the same thing with apartheid or, or the fall of communism. I mean, one day it was there and shit the next day it wasn't. Exactly. I, I mean, you know, we think of the long, slow arc of history. And, you know, it looks like to me, I'm probably a professor at Stanford, but sometimes this shit just bills and bills and bills. And then one day it snaps.
2: Exactly.
1: Well, you know,
2: and, and that's what you don't know. In fact, uh, You know, in my world, academic world, there's this this seminal article that was written about 1989, uh, and it's about falsified preferences. And, um, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm really cognizant of the fact that I'm talking to James Carville right now. So, uh, you know, you think about it, right? You know, in, in, in in a democracy, if somebody calls you up and says they work for a polling firm and you kind of tell them what you want. But although we've seen in our country that that's less and less so because Trump supporters don't report their true preferences anymore. But when you live in a police state like Russia, where everybody knows that your phone is being listened to, and everybody knows that you can be punished for expressing your true preferences, if you're sitting out there in Vladivostok or Katarinburg, And some stranger from Moscow calls you and says, hey, you know, I'm Vladimir. I'm I'm just doing a poll. I work for a polling firm. I want to know what you what you think of Putin. Um, There's only one rational response to that question uh, in Putin's Russia today, which is to, to say nothing or to say you support him. But your hidden preferences is that, you know, you probably would not reveal them. But the moment it looks like the tide is turning, that's when these things you know like you say they build and build and build and then just overnight as we saw you know in in uh, Eastern Europe in 1989 they explode and it, it looked like the Stasi in East Germany was incredibly powerful and you know repression was very strong and then a few weeks later it all uh, collapsed so I want to be clear I'm not predicting that in Russia and if I if I'm pressed to predict things I think the drama in Russia, will begin to happen after Putin is either not in power or incapacitated. But but to say that everything is going to be the same for for years and decades, I think that's that also is a is a very naive prediction.
1: So but this is something that personally drives me crazy and you may be uniquely qualified to answer. So we have all of these great institutions. Stanford, which is you know one of the I don't know, five best you know, we got MIT, we got Berkeley, we got the University of Chicago, we got the Ivy League. I wouldn't get on a goddamn Russian elevator, all right? <laughs> Much less a Russian airplane or drive a Russian car. Yet they kicked our ass technologically. They just came in, from what I know about this, I don't quite understand it, but it was some major technological coup. Yes. Why, why, why can these assholes? do this and we have all of all of these three we, uh, we have to like incense and bow to Palo Alto and Berkeley and all of the great everything. And what the hell are we doing? How did we get how did we get our pockets picked like this?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And, of course, I don't have a great answer because I, I can only read about these things. I, can't, I don't read classified material anymore. But I, I'd say I a couple of things. I'd say a couple of things. It's a very important point. Um, so, one, Russia is, like you say, like on many dimensions of their economy, they're underperforming. But they're not the basket case that I think a lot of people remember from the 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, they've recovered. They're they're not a great power, but they're they're not a collapsing, weak, failed state. I think we need to. That's the first thing I would say. Uh, number two, remember the resources that they have are controlled by the government, right? So Putin doesn't have the same resources. That the Chinese economy has or the American economy has, although, you know, they're top 10, by the way, and top six when you measure in in purchasing power parity. So uh, they they have come a long way in recovering. But the difference that Putin has over uh, President Biden is that the assets in that country, he has a lot of control over them. Right, because he has renationalized those assets. And number three, as a result of being a dictatorship, he can steer those assets to things that he cares about. And as a former KGB agent, uh, you know, and they always joke, you're never a former KGB agent, you're always KGB. Uh, That's what they toast themselves on uh, Czechist Day to talk about. Uh, So he is, you know, he has redistributed a lot of Russian assets into precisely things like their cyber capabilities that you're talking about. And they're really good at it. We actually have a team here at Stanford that studies these things and works on these things. And they're one of my colleagues, Alex Stamos, is studying this right now uh, on behalf of SolarWinds. And, you know, the forensics are showing these guys are really, really good at it. So they're taking their best and brightest scientists and mathematicians and putting them into that space. And we've got a lot of work to catch up with them You know, I think we have quite a bit of offensive capability, by the way. Uh, We just don't uh, talk about it. And if a solar winds like hack ever happens in Russia, you're not going to read about it in the Russian newspapers, right? Because they have a closed society. But we do have to get better at resilience. Uh, You know, the defensive part, we've been weak, we've been disorganized. And and frankly, there's a kind of conceptual problem here in that, Cybersecurity is this domain that, that we don't think is the U.S. government's uh, responsibility, right? So think about it in crude terms. Um, if if uh, some Chinese ships sail into the San Francisco Bay here and attack us, you expect the U.S. government to respond, right? That's the responsibility. Our security in that space, that physical space, is U.S. government. If somebody breaks into my house here, uh, here on Palo Alto, where I live, who do I call? I call 911. I call the police, right? I call the government to come help me. When the Russians are trying to hack into my email, and by the way, they do this all the time with me. I'm a pretty high target for them. Who do I call? I call my IT guy at Stanford. Or in bad cases, I get in touch with Google because I have a Gmail account, Right. In other words, I'm supposed to defend myself personally against the Russian government. Uh, why is that? Why is that not a government uh, uh, capability? And I think we've got to, you know we've got some work to do conceptually to say that physical attacks from foreign governments, yes, the Pentagon should defend us there, and cyber attacks, uh, the government should be uh, uh, you know playing a bigger role and not just have it as decentralized and personalized as it is right now.
0: You know, Mr. Ambassador, I am stunned that uh, – I know you're right, and I guess I knew it – but that they have come so far economically. I remember when John McCain was saying they were a gas station masquerading as a country, and people thought that uh, they were on a downward slide, uh, and they're not China or the U.S., but uh, they are They are not an impotent power. Right. And uh, I guess that's the reality we have to deal with.
2: Yes, I think, you know, I just wrote about this uh, uh, recently in a magazine called Foreign Affairs. I think this is one of the fundamental misconceptions we have of Russia today. And I'm saying this analytically, right? This is not a normative statement I'm making. Uh, number one, with respect to nuclear power, they're one of two superpowers in the world, period. Number two, with respect to military conventional power, they're one of three great powers in the world. It's the United States, China, and Russia. And in some dimensions of that the conventional power, I'm scared to death of the new conventional power they have on the borders of NATO, between Russia and NATO. I, I, I do, I'm I, very worried about that border in terms of conventional power. Three, economic power, there they fall behind, right? 10th or 11th, uh, but they're not the basket case that we've thought about in the past. And then fourth, ideological power. Uh, you know, we in America, we don't pay much attention to this, but Putin for the last 10 or 15 years has been devoting a lot of resources to propagating his ideas of orthodoxy, conservatism, nationalism, anti-multilateralism, uh, you know, and he thinks that the liberal West is his enemy, the, the, you know, the liberal decadent West. And you know, so he, he invests hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in that project. Things like Russia Today and Sputnik and NG he's got his own NGOs and he lends money to people like Le Pen in France. And that transnational movement of these populist, nationalist, orthodox people, you know, they're doing pretty well in the world right now today. And and we haven't been paying attention. And oh, by the way. They also have some allies here in the United States, right? Uh, The far right in the United States is much more enamored and supportive of a guy like Vladimir Putin than they are of President Biden. Uh, And that's what's different about this ideological moment today, right? In the Cold War, it was the communist bloc against the the free world. In this new world, this this ideological debate happens not between states, but within them. in Italy, you have uh, Salvini. In France, you have Le Pen. In the UK, you have Farage. And here in the United States, you know, you got uh, extreme elements of the right that also support guys like Vladimir Putin. That's, that's something I don't think we fully appreciate.
0: Well, James, I think we can agree. Our listeners ought to look at Ambassador McFall's piece uh, in Foreign Affairs and uh, to YouTube that uh, Navalny uh, a marvelous video on Putin's yeah. corruption. Uh, right.
1: and, um, I have a question. Uh, we so we a question. can't
0: thank you enough, Michael McFaul. We know I'm how busy kidding. you are. There's no one better on this topic than you. Thank you Yeah, so sure. Much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. It's delicious. With zero sugar, 11 grams, and only three net carbs in each serving, which means you can stay healthy and still enjoy your breakfast. Best of all, so many people have asked, now that you can finally build your own custom variety box you can choose from the best-selling cocoa fruity frosted and blueberry flavors plus now i don't know somehow my kid got a cut got one of these beforehand peanut butter and cinnamon i want to tell you i'm gonna get some of that peanut butter james how about you
1: I, i'll try anything you know what i like about our, our sponsor i love about magic spoon it's a really great product it's not like my pillow or colon cleansers uh, that's all crap that they have over there yeah so i love yeah. our show and i love our sponsors and i i i i, I like pushing for them because that that's a product that i use that i give to friends uh it actually is 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 good for you it tastes good and i got a feeling these these folks are going to be coming out with, with new flavors you know as we go forward i mean they look they look like people that don't sit around and wait for things to happen they look like people that you know, really go out and make things happen. So I'm excited to have a relationship with them, and we're going to have a lot of new flavors to talk about here. For, it's easy 100%. to
0: talk about this one, isn't it? It's it's keto yeah, it really free it's gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, uh, and it's got all the good stuff. So go to magicspoon.com warroom war room to grab a variety pack and try it today. Remember, you get that variety pack. And be sure to use our promo code war room. That's one word at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon, James, is so confident in their product, it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash Room and use the code warroom to save $5 off. magicspoon.com slash Room and use the code warroom or look for the link on our show notes. We thank Magic Spoon
1: for sponsoring this podcast. And just remember one thing. There's an occasion, I'll tell you this. It tastes good. Usually that crap tastes like cardboard, not this stuff. It actually really tastes good. So that's a, that to me, that's a big, big selling point is taste. It delivers.
0: Hey, James, David Falkenblick of National Public Radio, and my view is the best media reporter in the country. A while ago, he wrote a biography of Rupert Murdoch, which remains one of the best takes on that media mogul. He's closely following the media today, especially cable television, as the Trump uh, White House ends and we begin a new era. David, uh, first of all, welcome and thank you. Fox News has dominated cable for a long time. It flourished under Trump. You know, no, I saw in an interview the other day in NPR that they're caught in the pincer now. There's a threat from the right. Where do you think Murdoch is going to take him? Is he going to go hard right?
3: I got to tell you, Al, it sure looks like it. Uh, right now, uh, he appears to be trying to ward off the threat from his right flank, and that is in the in the post-election period, Fox News sure was sympathetic to a whole lot of what proved to be garbage claims about uh, widespread electoral fraud, the idea that people were somehow Uh, convening to cheat uh, President Trump and his supporters of Trump's victory. Biden, of course, won significantly and and notably. Uh, And at the same time, Fox is still tethered to reality. Uh, It has not gotten over the fact that it was the first major news uh, news organization to call uh, the state of Arizona for Joe Biden well before anybody else uh, in a way that the Trump administration and conservatives who have supportive of the president really resented. And they still have reporters who've been debunking all these bogus claims of election fraud. So, even though all the primetime hosts, or most of them, have been very generous and in indulgent or promoting the president's claims and those of his supporters, even though on Fox and Friends and Jeanine Pirro and Murray Bartiromo and all these shows, they indulge that, they still have enough facts and enough reporting that the core Trump voters resent it, So they're getting this threat from the right, particularly from Newsmax, which has been trying to exploit this opportunity to build its own brand and to get enough viewers to become a profitable cable news enterprise. And at the same time, you've seen a surge of viewers for people on CNN and MSNBC. So it looks like Murdoch's sweeping things to the right. He's swept away Uh, What was effectively a news program, center-right program uh, uh, from one of their top anchors, uh, Martha McCallum. She's been uh, exiled to mid-afternoon. And uh, it looks like they may well sweep away some more time uh, late in the evening by putting somebody like Greg Gutfeld, an opinion figure, on at 11 instead of, uh, you know, effectively an anchor in, in the person of Shannon Bream.
0: Yeah. Um, is Newsmax and ONN really a threat?
3: I don't think they're a threat in the sense that uh, ONN is going to get a significant chunk of Fox viewers. I mean, you're talking about a tiny audience, and I think you're homing into something really uh, worthwhile here, Al. Newsmax is not likely to uh, take away half of Fox's audiences or, or a huge amount of Fox's profits. What they are going to do is force Fox to compete with core Trump supporter, which overlaps rather neatly with the really uh, hyper loyal Fox viewer. And so if they're getting some of their viewers stripped away, and if also some more independent minded viewers are like, look, this stuff is too propagandistic for me. I've got to go to some place I think I can get more credible news. uh, They're going to see an erosion here. And I think it's really one of these moments where Fox has to figure out what it is and what it stands for, and whether the news part of Fox News is going to be a, a, at least a defining element. You know, I used to say about Fox, and, and I, I said this the other day, that Fox was the place where the tail wagged the dog. Yes, it's, it's got reporters, and it's got journalists, but that's not the point of Fox News. The opinion is the point of Fox News, and the tail has wagged the dog. Right now, it seems as though the tail is about to eat the dog. Right. Where, where opinion is the only thing that matters. And wow. if you look at their news programs, one of the uh, not so subtle moves they've made is to infuse and stuff those news programs with a lot of the more outrageous soundbites from their opinion shows. So even as they've diminished the amount of real estate news controls at Fox News, they've also diminished the number of minutes in any given news hour that actually is devoted to news coverage, putting in a lot more opinionary and incendiary rhetoric in there from its own uh, personalities at night.
0: Well, David, you know, I think you got into this in your book, but one of the—I mean, the secrets—no secret to it, but uh, one thing, Roger Ailes just understood grievance, and he played on grievance, and that's part of the reason they continue to flourish with Trump. Uh, But Joe Biden, uh, you know, really is not the handiest villain, I would think. Uh, With Barack Obama, they had race, Uh, and I'm sure Tucker Carlson and Lou Dobbs will do their rants about race and immigrants— But uh, do they need a new villain?
3: You know, you've hit on so many key things about the Fox formula over the years. Uh, Roger Ailes, who helped make Fox the success it is for Rupert Murdoch, um, did bake into the uh, recipe or the equation uh, grievance from the outset. And it was always part of Fox's coverage to select stories to stoke that grievance, often explicitly against the rest of the news media or about things that were other to their viewers. Well, Barack Obama, as you say, you know, African-American, son of a Kenyan, you know, hardly could be more made to order. What do you do with Joe Biden? You know, this guy from Scranton talks about this. Well, you go after his son, who's certainly a deeply flawed figure. And hey, look, as a journalist, I think it's perfectly valid to examine Hunter Biden's business ties, see if there's anything improper about other Biden family members. But it's got to be based on facts and reporting. I think that you're going to see a lot of focus on auxiliary stories. I think they're going to look really hard at ways in which they can exploit Kamala Harris, first female, to hold national office. That is uh, one of the top two jobs on the executive as vice president. She is uh, African-American. She is uh, Asian-American. These are going to be things they go after. Uh, I think also they're going to find other lesser stories to focus on. Uh, the fact that a transgender health official from the state of Pennsylvania, well credentialed, was elevated to a top role at Department of Health and Her- Human Services under the Biden administration. Well, they're, they've they tried to make a meal out of that. They've tried to find stories away from Washington that stoke a sense of grievance or a sense of, well, what about this outrage? And you're seeing this play out on their uh, evening shows, Tucker Carlson, you mentioned, but even Bill Hemmer. One of their anchors on the news side, ostensibly, somebody who came from CNN, uh, you know, he's talking about things in tones and expressions of outrage that seemed to me to be policy discussions. You know, he he presented to, to one guest the idea that Joe Biden had essentially uh, banned or suspended all drilling for oil and gas on federal lands as though it was an absolute betrayal of the American working class. And while I think you can raise questions about the implication of that policy, it just seemed to me. Much more in line with what you would have expected to see from a Fox News opinion figure than one of their anchors,
1: right? James Carville. So, so David, I, I actually watch a lot of Fox and Newsmax. Yeah. I, I don't know why, but I do. And the, what I say about Newsmax is they're really starting to get pretty good guests. I, I, I mean, whatever it is that the you know I mean really right I mean, people that that I, I like laugh at, but but they they. They, they get, they're starting to get some top end people that believe that they can communicate with what their donors or voters or whatever it is that they're trying to communicate with. On the Fox end, and I'll ask you to respond to this, I, I, I think Tucker and Hannity are, are just, they're panicked. And I mean, you, you can see when you, but I, I know Tucker well, you can see it in their face. I mean, they're like, you have to listen here. I'm the, and, and they're very, very big into. The, the tech company yeah. mob uh, that you're being put upon is huge, huge thing, and uh, you know now they, they. I don't know if they need Biden. They're big into Biden's trying to get rid of girls' sports, but when you you look at their faces, which I do, they they give you they they give off the aura that you know I am the only person between you will tell you the truth right here. You know, they say that I can't say that NPR, I'm not allowed to say that NPR is is a bunch of liberal coastal elites, but I just said NPR is a bunch of, but that, you know, and I will fight NPR to the death to be sure that your life is elevated. And I mean, you're literally getting that kind of stuff on there. And I don't know, my, you know, just looking at them over the past couple of weeks, I find them going harder and harder and almost like a sense of, of of and they're doing these Hunger Games at that seven o'clock yep. Eastern spot, and they're just all trying to out crazy the next one. I, I, you know, I I think you're being judicious in your evaluation. You know, of, I, I, I had a college
3: just, uh, <laughs> a roommate who always accused me of being the Nick Carraway of the bunch, uh, n- never judging harshly enough. Uh, <laughs> I would say that 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 you're onto something there, James. You know, they are casting about for. Where to find outrage and who to pretend to be victimized by, and, and what can be pointed to as the villains. You know, Ailes, as Al suggested, always was looking for a villain. I think that you, James, have hidden something really. Fundamental here where they're very focused on the idea of cancel culture, the idea that somehow people are being silenced, oh. that people on the right left are coming after people on the right. And that's why they're very big on big tech. Uh, you know, the idea that tech could take away the platform from the the president of the United States, now the former president of the United States and some of his key allies who have been spreading incredibly incendiary lies about fraud and calling for people to come and, you know, show in force in J- January 6th that turned into that deadly siege of Congress and all the rest. Well, I think there are implications about Facebook and Twitter and Google being able to de-platform people, but I also think that uh, you haven't seen uh, a A silencing of people. Josh Hawley, the the senator who from Missouri and possible Republican candidate for president uh, in three, four years, you know, has complained about cancel culture because his book contract with Simon and Schuster was was uh, canceled because of his encouragement of the crowds that turned into the mob on January 6th. But, you know, he complained about cancel culture even as his book is still coming out with a new conservative publisher, uh, Regnery, and he's uh, did it from the front pages of Rupert Murdoch's New York Post. So, you know, that's one of the most uh, widely disseminated newspapers in the country. Hardly uh, deplatformed, he has found an avenue to speak out. But Fox is absolutely going to try to find things they can pose as existential threats to try to find you. They don't have Bernie Sanders in the White House. They don't have... uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren in the White House. They don't, for that matter, have uh, you know Jeremiah Wright in the White House. So they have to figure out ways to amplify the threats and the stakes, and they're doing it at a time. Let's not forget where. Sean Hannity has never had as much influence on the national debate as he had under President Trump, because not only was he propounding a kind of a bombastic conservatism on the air and on his radio show, but he was also one of the president's chief advisors and allies off the air. There was no membrane separating their interests. So Hannity has lost that now. Hannity, in a sense, is in exile. And while Fox has always done very well in the Clinton years and the Obama years, being what former Fox executive Bill Schein called to me as playing the role of the voice of opposition, in this case, they're trying to figure out what it is they're opposing at a time that most of America has turned against Trump and what he stood for.
1: Well, I, I, I'm not a, at all a fan of cancel culture. And, uh, you know, I think some of it's well meaning and in, in, can get pretty pre- pretty silly but but they they use that a lot and i mean they're trying to get their footing but I, you yeah. know right now uh that they they're really they're really going i i find really 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 hard and i i think they're scared i think they're trying to, to figure out their their post-trump role here and they generally have been done pretty good in the past so i expect they'll you
3: know they'll guys, think of something guys i was out. just going to say before you weigh in you know Both of you are experienced hands appearing in various roles on cable news, right? And it strikes me that, and I'd be interested in your response to this, but this is my theory, is that with every new presidency, each of the three big cable news stations kind of slightly tweaks or or changes its formula. Like, it's almost like they each kind of reinvent themselves to figure out what's the zeitgeist and how do we want to present ourselves, whether it's through new mottos or new lineups or new formulas. And Fox right now, it seems to me, has gone from all Trump to an even harder liner approach to try to keep hold of the old guard. But I'd be interested in your guys' take on that.
0: Well, no, no, I, I, I agree be- with everything James just said about him. I, I, he watches him. You know, he's, he, he's religious and, and, and monitoring them. I, I do it some. Uh, you know, Lou, I even watch Lou Dobbs, which is uh, really a tribulation. But, but let me pick up what you said and turn it around. How about MSNBC? They were the Trump in reverse. I mean, they were the, or excuse me, Fox in reverse. They were the anti-Trump. Other than, you know, those really, you know, great reporters like Andrea Mitchell, uh, they, were, they were hammering at Trump every night. What do they do now? What's their mantra in 2021? Well, I think
3: this is a very interesting moment because MSNBC kind of cobbled together a coalition of liberals, leftists, and uh, never-Trumpers. People who were thought of themselves as loyal Republicans and and felt that the party betrayed them and got away from them. And I thought, you know, in some ways, most perhaps best personified by Nicole Wallace, who I think does a really nice job and is really sharp. But that's where she's at. Right now, MSNBC has to decide, you know, as they're watching this play out, as they look at Republicans who have been disaffected from their their own party. You know, does that mean the tent is big enough to include them when a Democrat is in the, office, in the White House, in the Oval Office? Is that coalition, in a sense, going to hold for MSNBC? And it sounds like kind of a political discussion we're having. But in a sense, that's the way the marketing and the strategizing will work. We don't know yet from the new head of MSNBC, who's just about to take over there, what she's intending, uh, you know, to do. Uh, with MSNBC. And I, I think that we're going to have to see, you know, Rashida Jones gets the chance right now to decide, uh, are we doubling down on MSNBC being of the left or are we looking to be from the center right to the far reaches of the left? That is, you know, are we going to try to be hold on to this broader uh, umbrella coalition of people who are opposed to Trumpism? Will that still hold? And I don't think we know the answer yet. I mean, I think it's it, they're lucky that Joe Biden won as opposed to somebody more on the lib- more liberal wing of the Republic of the Democratic Party, he you know is sort of considered a centrist Democrat and therefore can appeal to the kind of uh Republicans who are never Trumpers. Uh, but I don't think we know fully. We know that they've t- tested the moment, and you see a lot more uh hosts of color than you did a year two years ago, and you're seeing more uh female hosts than you did a few years ago, and so I think they're trying to tap into that sensibility in society at large as well. But that's all before Jones came on board. They're now, Phil Griffin is stepping down and she's gonna have the chance to determine and set the future. We don't know there. Similarly at CNN, Jeff Zucker has been there for quite a while now. Uh, It looks to me as though he'll stay on, but there'd been talk he would leave. Maybe at one point thought he might run for mayor of New York. He's ruled that out. Uh, It looks like he's gonna figure out some detente from my perspective, with AT&T, the new parent owners of CNN, to stick around there. But I think CNN is going to have to decide what it stands for other than being resolutely journalistically and in its it's opinionated voices against what Trump offers.
0: Well, David, I think it's also true of newspapers. I mean, I don't think The Times and The Post played the kind of angles that MSNBC did, but they clearly – Flourished during the Trump years. I mean, their circulation skyrocketed, and I want to quickly add here that the legendary now Post editor Marty Barron announced his retirement. I think they do great journalism, but are they worried? about losing particularly some of those digital subscribers now that there's not Trump. Right, we've heard so much about
3: the New York Times and its uh, digital subscriptions, right? They now have more than 5 million subscribers, but wasn't it something to see as uh, Marty Baron announced his retirement that the Washington Post has over 3 million digital subscribers alone, and they've got Mm -hmm. to have many hundreds of thousands of paying print subscribers still. Uh, And so that means that they're really on an astonishingly strong financial footing. And yes, I do think that the robust and intense enterprise reporting you've seen from the Times and the Post in particular have enabled it to connect with the American public uh, or at least sufficient level of readers that they value it to pay for it uh, every day. And I think that's been great for them. I think what they expect is not a fall off, uh, uh, falling away of subscribers, but a falling off of the dramatic growth in digital subscriptions. So I don't think they're going to see the sort of nosebleed-like ascent. Uh, uh, for those for those revenues, they're going to have a slower growth. But I think they expect to retain people uh, even in the Biden years.
1: Yeah, James, I think when you do your next book three years from now in the media, tell me the, the book title is going to be the great, the great reshuffle, because it's obvious that the three talking about the three cable networks. It, you know, each one in their own way is sort of gone under a, a post-Trump reevaluation. I think what's going to happen is, is Fox is going to really double down on its kind of cultural resentment and its kind of anti-lead anti-whatever the, the moment they can get. My sense is, and I think it's your sense too, is MSNBC will become, in, you know, still do news, but will be, become increasingly woke. And CNN, who's actually had a pretty good run. I mean, if you look at, at, at what they've done is, I, I, I don't know if they're going to be in for great changes. I, I, I think they, they might, the, of the three, they might be the most static of the networks, but that's that's just my guess. But we'll all know when you write the, the great reshuffle. Uh, I like the title too. <laughs> uh,
3: you know, I mean, the th- question I have for CNN is you think about Chris Cuomo and you think about Don Lemon, who have really had pretty impressive ratings uh, uh, in many ways, but they've had Trump to inveigh against, right? Uh, And they could do it in what they would argue is, and their critics would argue is not, but they would do it in a way that they would argue is non-ideological because Trump, uh, you know, trampled so many norms. He seemed to violate so many uh, laws in it in certain ways, certainly violate his responsibilities as president, the question of the pandemic. I mean, there are plenty of things to knock him with hard. That's a... That is, you know, that juices the adrenaline for viewers. It gets them to come back after the commercial break and stick around. Uh, It gets them to tune in night after night. There's been a a soap opera and a drama that the Biden people are uh, working feverishly to uh, de-escalate, right? And to to offer a sense of this isn't, you know, no drama Obama part two in, in terms of the tone and the tenor. Even if that's not the way Biden always himself carried himself. That's what they want for this administration. That's what they're signaling. And so I think CNN, in the absence of I- intensity of news, CNN's going to have to figure it out. Right now, we have a pandemic. Right now, we have uh, intense uh, financial strain on the country, a, a recession, uh, real real hardship for a lot of Americans. Uh, we've got a, a time of great tumult in Washington just in terms of policy and politics. So I think they'll do fine for the coming months. But let's say things get a little calmer. I don't know what it is CNN's going to be offering except the notion that if things break, they're going to be right there for you.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And that's their big advantage is that they spend a lot of money on infrastructure. Yeah. So it's a big story, you know, that the, the, the plane crash, they, they, they get the best you know, plane consultant on to explain it to you. I, I think Sanjay Gupta is they, really I was going to say, you're right. They've done
0: a really good job on the COVID.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that political stuff uh, is, is, you know, Paul and, and Axe and people like that are good, but I, I don't think they're very deep. Or, I, you know, I don't know if they really care that much about having in-depth political stuff, but I, I don't think they're, they're particularly good there. But on a lot of other stuff, that they, 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 they're really good. And if there's a big event, it's kind of weird. You, you you go to them first, and that that, that was not always the case. Yeah,
0: I can't imagine a Don Lemon or a Chris Cuomo show without Trump, David. I don't I don't know what they're well, going to do. Well, I think this
3: is, these are the moments where they have to think hard, and it's, they have to think hard both journalistically, but really they're thinking about this in terms of programming. They're thinking about this in terms of what are, tone are we trying to capture? What audience do we think we will get loyal here? How are we going to do this and fit within our brand of CNN? You know, before Trump— Zucker had had some success really getting these kind of non-news shows like the Anthony Bourdain shows, the adventure shows and travel shows that actually some of which were quite brilliant Uh, and in ways in which it was more news magazine-y and and more lifestyle, but in a way that was often, not always, but often thoughtful. And then Trump came and the news was too vital. Like this was a a reasonable uh, time at which to devote yourself fully to what's happening to news, even if You know, CNN did a lot of things right, even if you can point to some things they really got wrong and sometimes they got very overheated. I think the real question is, as we're talking about the tenor of their prime time, how do you do that in the age of calm, in the age of at least a projected competence? You know, let's hold Biden accountable. Let's do that. But it's hard to talk about him around the clock.
0: Yeah. Boy, I tell you, uh, James, we're not going to have to wait for that next Book of David Falcone. We can follow him every week because uh, he's on top of this, as we have just seen. David, you're a great guest. We really appreciate it. We hope. Hey, Al, it's my
3: great pleasure to talk with you both. Thanks for the invite.
0: Let's let's go to our our, our listeners because. Those questions that we get every week are so good, yeah. I, they really take us, I think, sometimes even to a new level. So you ready for some, some good ways? I'm ready to roll here, man, my favorite part. I'm Almost started home this week. We've been kind of favoring people across either the Pacific or the Atlantic pond, but let's start with David in Lynn, Massachusetts, who says, why are so many people concerned about Trump's influence after Biden gets inaugurated? It seems to me he's gone, essentially banned from his social media platforms. He may as well be screaming from the bottom of a well.
1: You know, David, he has, you know, he has been cut off at the past a lot of places, but you saw his influence when 45 Republican senators (laughs) said that they couldn't, you know, that this was unconstitutional. I mean, uh, the people bagged home that, you know, at least 70% of the rank and file are fanatical about this guy. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, uh, you, your point is well taken, but and I'm, I'm not sure there's anything can be done about it. i really not. I, the only thing I would no, advise I these people is please don't have children. You shouldn't be in the gene pool if you're that stupid. But I, I guess I, there's nothing I can do about that either. But, I mean, it's, and if you do as I do, and, and we'll get to later in the show, uh, uh, when you look at right-wing media, if anything, it's gotten worse. No one has learned mm-hmm. anything. They basically had a, a, a insurrection where they were going to try to kill the vice president, who is by everybody's estimation and the speaker of the house, die in the world of They don't give a shit. Yeah. They don't give a shit. It
0: just- no, I, I agree. I, I just I don't see much change. Um, James, do I do a lot this question. Francis yeah. in San Paulo says after the events of January six, the New York Times reported that that um, Brazil publication said the United States has fallen to the level of Latin American countries. What actions would you advise Biden to pursue to restore Latin American confidence in America as a standard bearer of democracy? God, I love that question. I would say, hey, I think Joe Biden is well on his way to doing it. Uh, I think under Donald Trump, we did fall to the level of his pal in Brazil. Uh, I think that's over. And I think we're going to have lots of problems, lots of challenges. We talked about some of them all already. But as far as being a beacon of democracy and uh, a, a place that people can look to in the world, I think Joe Biden has already in one week done a lot to restore that and more
1: will happen. So Sao Paulo. So I've been a Sao Paulo many times. And it, it, first of all, they're like more Japanese in Sao Paulo and I might be slightly wrong, but not by much in Sao Paulo in any city outside of Japan. There are more Lebanese in Sao Paulo than than any. I, I mean, it is a huge place. And this is in the nineties and the earlier part of this century. It, to some extent, it it, it 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 doesn't have it has like a downtown, but not much of one. It just you it, you can't believe what a mega city in a diverse place that Sao Paulo is. And I just, and I work for for President Cardozo. I've always loved Brazil. I, I think it's just a place that really works, and it's just a fall away we do. I mean, it's just like we're this, you know. In, in what they said about Brazil, you know, Brazil is the nation of the future, and it always will be. But yeah. it, it's a, it, it's a great country. I, I, I love Sao Paulo. I, when I watch what's going on in Brazil, I, I, my heart aches for you, and I'm sure your your heart must have ached. For all of us in, in the United States, when you see the jackassery that we've been through, I, I look— I, Well, at good, and we're going to make we're gonna Francis you. proud.
0: James, you will love—we're going to stay in abroad. Sydney, Australia. You're going to like this one. Stuart, asked really the reverse of that. He said, do, do Americans really understand, truly understand the relief that all of us outside the United States feel now that Trump is gone? And is there appreciation for the deep-seated stress of the Trump years that have been outside— the United States as an aside, let me say, uh, I'm sure there, there there was there was a lot of stress. Let me tell you, there was more than a little bit inside. And then his second question is directed right to you. It's a tough one, but was Bill Clinton the best ever? Well,
1: I, I would say this. If, if you look at, if you judge the the, the the metrics of the United States on January the 20th, 1993, and January the 20th, 2001, kind of hard to argue otherwise, all right? You can you you can argue causation or correlation, or they had this, or they didn't have this. It was this, it was widely believed, reported, and said on multiple occasions. I'd be glad to show this. That in the, year, the beginning of two thousand one, the United States militarily, culturally, and economically was the most ascendant nation since ancient Rome. That's a fact. So we can, the the, the anti-Clinton people can figure out, well, it was really more about what Reagan did in 1984, it was really more about the end of World War II, it was really more about this. That is just just a simple fact. That was a widely held view around the world. So I'll I'll, I'll stand on that record pretty good. Thank you for the question.
0: Pablo and, excuse me, Sherry in Santa Rosa, California. Ask if we have any thoughts about particularly notable Senate elections in 2022. We really just covered some of that. But uh, watch Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, uh, Iowa, and now Ohio on the Democratic side. um, You know, you got to worry about Georgia, um, maybe Arizona, although I think Mark Kelly will be a very strong candidate uh, for reelection. And I think that the Republican Party out there is so screwed up that uh, I would not put Arizona on any high worry list right now.
1: Yeah, I, I, but if you if you have anything like approaching a two thousand ten or fourteen, you, you could lose like New Hampshire. And, you know, there's some idea that maybe if if Leahy doesn't run, a very popular Republican governor, very moderate yeah. liberal. I, I mean, as a, if if you want to worry, there's any. What about Florida? I just just I, let's stop giving up on Florida. The last time we had a Senate election, Florida, we lost by ten thousand votes. And, you know, I think Val Demings, you know, would be a pretty strong goddamn candidate in Florida. And and Rubio, uh, that's where I'm going to spend my time. If we can get a good candidate. I mean, you talk about the most disappointing, pliable. I I mean, Lindsey Graham is a joke. All right, forget him. Rubio is every bit as odious as Lindsey Graham. And Florida in 2018 passed felon's right to vote. By sixty percent, Florida in 2020 passed a fifteen dollars minimum wage. By sixty percent, all right, and I, and if we get, if we get away from this defund the police crap, all right, in, in which I think Demings would be a, a, a good candidate across the board. She's from the, you know, to the extent there's the right part of the state to be from. She's from the right part of the state. I mean, she's got a strong record. She, she's she's African American, which, you know, and we know in Georgia, that certainly didn't hurt anything. If anything, helped. And uh, she's very good. She, you know, i watched it many times on um, television. And if we just don't do something stupid, like get in, you know, with Jeff Green running in the gubernatorial primary, which had Andrew win and knocked out. Uh, Gwen Graham or, or, or Phil Levine, if the Florida Democrats just approach this thing with, with some determination and and, and vision, I, I I think I think we can go after. I, and and this, this this And
0: I would encourage anyone named Trump to you know get in the water, get in the Republican primary down there. That'll make it even more interesting. Lisa in Pismo Beach, California. Asked James, "Will we ever know the full extent of Trump's involvement with
1: Russia?" There is a book out right now by uh, Craig Younger. if I got it right? And he has names. We should have him on the show at some point. He's got names of like KGB agents. And I, 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 I don't know if we'll ever know. And what is unfortunate. Is that I'm afraid people are stop have stopped looking. Uh, you know, we got Ambassador McFaul on later, and I'm like Nancy Pelosi: Is there any other explanation for this? Because uh, I don't see any other explanation. Maybe, yeah. you know, I, I know that the dog didn't bark, right? <laughs> that much I know. So, but maybe the dog had laryngitis. I don't know. I doubt it. I, I. I you know, they just just looking today, and this book is getting some 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 lift out there. it. It really is. So you know, of course, it's, you know, it's maybe he's not credentialed enough that people pay attention, or maybe there's something wrong with it. But I, I think this book needs to be digested and it needs to be parsed and gone through. But you know, maybe the guy that he's got for his who's the KGB guy is. Not what he's cranked up to be, but I think it's deserving of a good, hard, close look.
0: Well, okay, good. Maybe we'll have him on. Yeah. Uh, final question: We have Tom in New York City, who wants to know about Mitch McConnell and wants to know what's Mitch McConnell's agenda over the next few months. Can he and Schumer work together? Mitch McConnell's survival, as it always is, is power and money. Survival. He will only work if he is if it's in his interest. Uh, he is, that's, every politician pursues his self-interest, but there were leaders from George Mitchell to Howard Baker to Bob Dole who were willing to put the country first if necessary. He won't. And uh, I'm not very optimistic about much that could occur in the Senate. They said today, James, they're going to filibuster the Homeland Security Secretary. I mean, of all times, you don't want to have a filibuster of a of a top office. It's Homeland Security. No, it's just a yeah, they're going through the motions. It only takes a majority vote. They'll confirm the person whenever Schumer wants to bring it up. But I think that tells you what Mitch McConnell's up to.
1: You know, in some ways, Mitch McConnell is almost a perfect creature. I, I mean, you have people that are, are, are just driven by power and ambition, but every now and then they got some side of them and you go, well, they're the kind a of human side. All right. He has no... Mr. Kyle is, is a man that is literally devoid of humanity. It doesn't even cross its mind. He thinks that such that silliness, emotion, you know, sense of responsibility, duty. He wouldn't know what you were talking about. He's like a, a perfectly designed, you know, I don't know what, what he was, how he was raised or anything like that. But he is just—he's just this perfect power machine that thinks that any conversation outside of his own power is. It, it, why are you bringing this up? It's just a giant waste of time. And you know, everybody looks for this little secret Oh, maybe Mitch McConnell is it. Maybe Mitch McConnell's that. He doesn't really—he—he he doesn't have the same human connection that that other people have. And I—I I, I think like. People are going to study him for a long time. It, 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 in, in some ways, he's not in a sense of like he's an evil person. He's just, he's as evil as he has to be to perpetrate his own power. I mean, he's not like a, he's not evil like Trump. But he's just all about one thing and one thing only. He wouldn't give up one-tenth or one-percent of his own power if you told him you could get another million vaccines to somebody. Shit, no. Yeah. He wouldn't even think about it. Are you crazy? I'm going to give up yeah. something for me to go get a bunch of people shot in the I mean, look what he did in the Supreme yeah. Court. Just did it right in front of your face. Just told the whole country, go fuck yourself.
0: Well, until he can't get away with it, he's going to keep doing it. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. James, let's move to our new segment, new of the last three
1: or four weeks, which is the outrages of the week. Why don't you start this week? Right. So, I, as you know, last week, I, I was very critical of the New York Times in 1924, but we are sure that they're better. Uh, the, the, uh, Michael Shear's question, now, to understand, this question was asked, and Joe Biden had been in office for 24 hours, all right? This is the question, that, this is where the New York Times cop 2021 is. Listen to this book. bloviator.
4: So I want to push you a little bit more on, on that question. Like if, if there's this call for unity that the President made in his speech yesterday, but there has so far been almost no fig leaf even to the Republican Party. You don't have a Republican cabinet member like President Obama Obama, and uh, I think President Clinton had. You, you know, uh, the executive orders that he's come out the gate have been largely designed at erasing as much of the Trump legacy as as you can with executive orders much of which the republican party likes and agrees with you've put forth a, an immigration bill that has a path to citizenship but doesn't do much of a nod towards the border security and you've got a 1.9 trillion dollar uh COVID relief bill that has as folks have said already drawn all sorts of criticism where is the where is the actual action behind this idea of bipartisanship and when when are we going to see one of those, you know, sort of substantial outreaches that says this is something that, you know, the Republicans want to do, too?
1: All right. So, all right. He's a, he's a big Harvard guy. Of course, Jen Paskey's a state school girl, kicked his ass. But this is where we're going to start. I like Broda. The country is in the depth of the crisis. The guy is not in office for 24 hours. And they say, well, you haven't really you're doing immigration and the Republicans are like that. And you've had these executive orders and, you know, maybe you ought to bring Mitch McConnell in and sit down and see what you can do. If this is the crap, if this is how the New York Times is going to start this, I don't know how it's going to end. But I think people have got to call this stuff out, this both you know, yeah, there's good people on both sides. I think this is, as Barney Fife would say, nip it, nip it, nip it in the bud. This is, I'm sure they got much better since 1924.
0: James, this is one of those areas we disagree. I know uh, your, your animosity towards the New York Times. I want to tell you, I think any question within certain bounds uh, other than extreme questions are perfectly legitimate. Ask a question. People are on public payroll. They can be asked a question. Do I think that was one of Michael Shear's best questions? Obviously not. It wasn't a very good one. He's a good reporter. But I'm not going to get upset about people asking questions. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what we didn't get any answers to in the last four years. And I will say this, I have been watching White House press briefings for 50 years, and I've never seen anyone who handles questions better than Jen Psaki. So don't worry about Jen Psaki. She'll do just fine.
1: I'm not worried about her. I'm I'm worried about the people not learning shit from history, just like this guy never did. Yeah, sack is my no.
0: outrage, Jamie. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna I'm gonna offer a jump ball and see what our listeners think. I'm gonna give you three possible outrages, three possible let's call them duplicities of the month, if you will. One would be Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, who first said that he thought that Trump was not responsible for. January the 6th, even though he was, he then said that, yeah, he was, and he didn't incite. And then he came back and said, no, on third thought, I guess he didn't. We're all responsible. So are you responsible, as Kevin McCarthy said? The second would be Lindsey Graham, who said the Democrats are trying to divide the country while Donald Trump is trying to unify it. Poor little Lindsey is saying, you know, why are we picking on Donald Trump? So he's the second candidate, but our third candidate would be Fox News, and it would be Uh, Tucker Carlson, Lou Dobbs, who are just shocked, shocked by the media bias in favor of Donald—in favor of Joe Biden and against Donald Trump. Imagine the media bias. So take your pick. Send letters in as to which you think is the greater outrage uh, of those three. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. We love those questions. Remember to check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. It's what makes this podcast happen. To keep up with us every week, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show in week two of the Biden administration as we continue our war room planning uh, for 2021.